Hey there, and welcome to The Jeffrey Van Dyke Show, a podcast for paradigm changers. Each week, I speak with another influential leader who's changing the conversation for their audience, their industry, and this world. I am so glad you're here. Welcome to the show. Jane Elliott, thank you so much. It's a real privilege to have you here. Um, So those of you who aren't familiar with Jane, which uh, probably isn't many of you, uh, Jane Elliott is uh, the person who started the Blue Eye Brown Eyed Study in 1968. She's an internationally known teacher, lecturer, diversity trainer, uh, recipient of the National Mental Health Associate Award for Excellence in Education. Uh, and she exposes bigotry and prejudice for what it is, an irrational class system based on purely arbitrary factors. Jane, you said in uh, an email uh, while we were trying to get the show booked, you said, I'd happy to be booked for the show if you send me the dates and time. However, you need to know that I'm opposed to labeling members of the one race on the face of the earth, the human race, as black or white, since we're all shades of brown. I was so interested in this. And... Um, I'm wondering if you can start there, because I think that gets at the heart of the conversation you've been in for a long time in this in this world. Okay, here's here's what I understand after reading and reading and reading for 53 years about this topic. White and black are polar opposites. You look in the dictionary and white is the color of goodness and purity. Black is the color of savagery and evil. Those two words weren't used to describe human beings until during the Spanish Inquisition. Torquemada and his group of followers were trying to Catholicize everybody they came to. So they killed those that they thought weren't Catholics. It wasn't until they realized that they'd killed a whole bunch of Christians that they understood that you couldn't tell what a person's religion was by looking at them. So they decided they had to find a way to distinguish between those who deserved to die and those who didn't. And they set upon skin color. And they called those who were light brown white and those who were darker brown black. It is, and it only started in the late 1400s and early 1500s. And somebody called me a couple of weeks ago and said, we want you to talk about the history of race. I said, well, then I'll have to learn something about it first, won't I? So I went to the dictionary and looked, I looked up the word race, meaning a group of people. It is of French origin in 1580 that's the first time they referred to people as members of different races. Hmm. Think about that. Think about that. Yeah. We are, we, we call one group white was the color of goodness and purity and the other group black, which is the color of evil and savagery. If you spe- separate people in that way, you automatically create a chasm between them that you cannot bridge unless You have an education system that says, look, folks, we're going to look these words up in the dictionary. We're going to find out where and when they originated as related to people. And then we're going to decide whether we want to use a vocabulary out of the 14th and 15th century. And if we do, then perhaps we want to use the 14th and 15th century means of communication and transportation. So from now on, I'll be watching for smoke signals on the horizon after I do one of these. And I will expect I will expect the Pony Express rider to go through here with your messages. And I will live in the dark most of the time. However, I'm in Southern California in the wintertime. I don't have to live in the dark. But in the sum, in the wintertime in Iowa, I would have to live in the dark for six, well, about four months of the year. We don't want to live. I don't think there are many women around here would want to dress in pantaloons and corsets so tight that you couldn't breathe 
And I certainly don't think many men would want to wear knee breeches and powdered wigs. But if you're going to use the vocabulary of the 14th and 15th century, then you need to live the way they did in the 14th and 15th century. Women go back to the kitchen, produce at least 10 children apiece, mm -hmm. and men work yourselves to death by the age of 40. Because that was life expectancy for men in those years. Yeah. I want to understand a little bit about how you got into doing what you have done for so long. Um, well, well, I'll tell you how I did. My father said, you can't judge a book by its cover. He also said, every week, a fair thing is a pretty thing, and a right wrongs no man. And he also said, you know the difference between right and wrong. Now do the right thing, goddammit. And that's what he meant. He knew the difference between right and wrong. He taught us the difference between right and wrong. He also said and if he were alive, if he had been alive for the last four years, he would have been absolutely frothing at the mouth because he would say, a man's judged by the company he keeps and the best of company is none too good. Now I've thought of that for the last four years and every day I've heard my father say, I told you for four years, if we all had the kind of father who told us the absolute truth and would never tell a lie, the man who was our president for four years would never have been elected. I got into this because of the kind of upbringing I had at the hands of my father. Your dad sounds like a pretty amazing human. He was, but, but the, the, the thing that was amazing about him was he never went to college. He got married at the age of 18. He raised six kids. He, gave, he, he fathered seven and raised six, broke his heart when he lost that one. Mm -hmm. But he never told a lie. He never told a lie. And he would say to us, if you're going to lie, don't lie to me. And he would also say, don't tell a lie unless you have a really good memory because you can't remember the last lie you told. Yeah. He was just, he was just, he had more common sense than any 10 people I've ever known. And somebody said a long time ago, uh, common sense in uncommon amounts is what the world calls wisdom. He, I remember, I was born in 1933. That was the year that Adolf Hitler and Franklin Roosevelt came to power in their respective countries. And I remember my father just absolutely frantic, not frantic, just furious about what, what he would hear about what was happening on the radio. You'd hear it on the radio, what was happening in Germany and all over Europe because of Hitler. And so for tw the first 12 years of my life, I heard how awful Hitler was, the things that he was doing, the ideas that he had, the things that he was willing to do, the people he was willing to kill, the number of people he killed. So from 1933 till 1945, I heard my father talking about that. And I saw the troop trains that went through Riceville, Iowa with the young men, young, oh God, they were so young, going to fight in a war that should never have been necessary and wasn't. But I also knew from my father that we were in a depression. It was following the Great Depression. And in order to get out of it, we had to go to war. Mm. So Franklin Roosevelt let that war happen. Somebody said to him, what are you going to do about Hitler? He said, leave that man alone. He's dealing with a problem the rest of us don't want to deal with. He knew what he had to do. And he knew he had to get the Japanese involved. He knew that we had to get out of the depression. And the way to get out of a depression is to go into a war. Then everybody gets a job. Everybody's busy. The corporations are happy. The people are, their, their, their minds are distracted from what is actually going on in their country by what is going on overseas, by the young men being taken and killed in the name of some old white man's desire to change the economy. You, you use the word distraction. I think, uh, I, I feel like we're so distracted now. That's right. That's right. For four years, we have been 
the person but you need to know <laughs> this is all this is also circular donald trump when he when he became president within two months i was saying this is hitlerian this guy is acting like hitler and then yeah. I would say to myself, now you're exaggerating, Jane, get over that. And people would say to me, don't you think you're exaggerating? And I would say, I remember. And then I read the book, When at Times the Mob is Swayed by Burt Newborn. And in that book, he says that in Donald Trump's bedside table in a locked drawer, he kept a book, which was The New World Order, which was written by Adolf Hitler. He was basing his governing style and policies on what he learned from Adolf Hitler. And when you look at what's happening right now, today in this country, we are back in the days of the robber barons. That was the late 1800s. You have to realize that if you, if you read Robert Reich's book, The System, you will realize that 196 wealthy people, members of the business roundtable, are deciding how the rest of us will live. As long as they are, Mr. Trump said, I'm going to cut corporations. He said, I'm going to make you more wealthy than you have ever been. People who were millionaires are now billionaires. Billionaires are now, are now trillionaires because of the policies that Mr. Trump and his cohorts put in place in this country in the last four years. People need to be aware of the fact of the past because someone has said those who forget the past are the mistakes of the past are doomed to repeat them. Yeah. We have forgotten the mistakes of the past. We never learned about them. If you're under the age of 65, you never learned about them. Once the Second World War was over, then it was supposedly easy sliding. And it was, because, but we knew how to keep wars going. Today, today, Mr. Biden has decided and is going to take our troops out of Afghanistan after 20 years of war. 20 years, the longest war in our history. What in the world kept us in that war for 20 years? We accomplished nothing mm -hmm. except to kill over 2,000 so-called American men. Now, those aren't American men. Those are U.S. United States of American men. That's another thing we have to do. We have to stop. This is, this is oh, people are going to, if anybody is listening after this, they're going to be really furious. We have to stop calling this country America. America is everything from the northernmost point of Canada to the southernmost point of South America. Every person who is a, a citizen of any one of those countries is an American. What's important about the United States of America is those 48 contiguous states, Alaska, Hawaii, and very shortly now, Washington, D.C., and probably Puerto Rico, those now pretty soon 52 states are the United States of America. The most important word in that title is the word united. And that is the word that has bothered Mr. Trump the most. He has mm. been trying to divide, to divide this country for four years. And before that, while he was making his money and declaring bankruptcy several times, it was in his mind to divide this country into, if you've ever read the book, The Nine States of North America, it will blow you away because there are nine, there are nine nations in North America, nine different areas where people speak differently, dress differently, have a different culture. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating book. I read it years ago, years and years ago. But yeah. everybody needs to realize that we have been led down the wrong path the last four years. And we need to stop now, recognize what was happening to us. And remember, if you're my age, you will remember what happened during the Second World War. And you will be determined not to allow it to be repeated. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of Joe Biden. I don't agree with everything Joe Biden does. But if he can get those troops out of Afghanistan and bring them home, 
He has done a tremendous. That's a really wonderful thing for this country to be out of war for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask this much later, but what do you what do you think we're getting right and wrong about our conversation around race, around the work we're doing uh, around race now? I mean, it just uh, it, it strikes me looking at your history in particular and how long you've been in this conversation. I'm <laughs> curious, you know, how what's your feeling about where we're at? I thought when Barack Obama was elected that we were on our way. I thought, oh, I can stop doing this work. Yeah. I can relax and go home and enjoy my husband. Well, then my husband died. So I couldn't do that anymore. Then I didn't, and I didn't realize that 40% of the population of the United States, among them evangelical Christians, were going to go underground and work desperately hard to get rid of Barack Obama. And to take us back to the 50s, Ronald Reagan said, we're going to go back to the 50s. Those were the good old days. They were good for white males. They weren't worth a damn for the rest of us. I don't want to go back to the 50s. I didn't want to go back then. And I don't want to go back now. But we have we have 40 percent of the electorate in this country wants to go back to when women knew men were men and women knew where they belonged. Yeah, I don't want to go back to that. That is that was not a good place for any of us. It wasn't even a good place for men, white men, because. They die younger than women do, and they die younger during that period of time than they had after that period of time. When we were, when we were more free and women were taking part of the responsibility for raking, not only raising the children, but bringing home the bacon, I mean, you know, making yeah. a living, yeah. men lived longer. But now we're going to go back to the situation where men live shorter lives because they are, they are held responsible for more of the struggle of supporting a family and raising children. And this is not, this is, doesn't make any sense to me, but yeah. nothing, nothing that we have done in the last four years has been good for anyone other than the top one-tenth of 1%. The rest of us have gone backward in every way about, yeah. in the last four years, and particularly where racism is concerned. Do you think on some strange level, I, I don't even want to use this word, but like that it was... <laughs> Go ahead that it was necessary for us to see the underbelly of the stuff we haven't been dealing with or looking at. Uh, well, I think what was necessary then and what is necessary now is a change in the education that's offered in this country. Yeah. I think that if we would teach, number one, I think we have to start, instead of teaching the three R's, only the three R's, and that's a ridiculous thing to call what we teach in the schools. The three R's, only one of those words begins with R. Reading begins with R. Writing begins with W. And arithmetic begins with A. So that's sort of indicative of the kind of education we offer in this country. Yeah. Instead of offering just that, instead of just teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic, I think we need to teach the three R's of rights, respect, and responsibility. Hmm. And if you could teach every child from preschool to the 12th grade, that you are responsible and you will be held responsible for respecting the rights of every student, every janitor, every administrator, every instructor, every, every person in that school building, that when you got out of school, you would, you would be accustomed to respecting the rights of all those around you. We have to start teaching rights, respect, and responsibility, because if we don't, we're in big, big trouble. We're doing a bad job in education. In this country, what we call education is really indoctrination. 
we teach our students at the price of their, their parents' tax money how to be good so-called American citizens, not how to be good citizens of the world, right. not how to be good citizens of the society, not how to be compassionate people who care about others, but how to be good citizens of America. It is narrow-minded and it is short-sighted and it is going it made it possible for a Donald Trump to get where he where he got. I think that's we need to we need to teach a whole we need to do a better job of educating people. Excuse me for just a minute. All right. I, I'm busy right now. Can you call later? Okay, bye. I hope she said yes, but I don't know. Go on. <laughs> Uh, have you, I mean, the, 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 in my preparation for this, a lot of the stuff I've seen you've, you've done has been around diversity training, you know, both in educational settings and corporate settings. I'm curious if you've been involved in reforming our education system, uh, in the country or. No, no. And they don't want me to be. Yeah. You have to realize that we've got to set the way we want it. We've got a set that you, we, we consider ourselves educated and, and diverse because we say that Columbus discovered America. And now we have Black History Month. Let me tell you something. Blacks from Africa, people from Africa, who had already begun to change color because they were exposed to less and less sunlight, so their skins were getting lighter and lighter as they moved farther and farther from the equator, they discovered this continent between 20,000 and 10,000 years ago, long before Columbus was even a gleam in his father's eye. Instead of celebrating Columbus Day, we should be celebrating African-American Day because they were here first. And if you don't believe me, then you need to get this magazine. And anybody who doesn't, hasn't read this magazine has missed a real opportunity to educate themselves. Have you seen this copy of the, of the National Geographic magazine? Black and white. Uh, no, I am not. See these two girls? Yes. They are twin sisters. They have a black father and a white mother. Would you call them biracial? Uh, maybe. Why? Why would you call them biracial? They both, have, they both are members of the same race. What race is that? The human race. The human race. So these girls are not biracial. Yeah. Both of their parents were members of the same race, the human race. The idea of different races came up in 1580. These girls are not members of a different race. They, are, they should be called mosaic. A mosaic is an art form that is new, beautiful, unique, and made of many different elements. That's what these girls ought to be called. But inside this, you will see this map in this magazine, which when I read it, it, it was like, thank you, God. I should, I'm sure God didn't put this in here for me, but it has certainly <laughs> made my life easier. You see this map? This is where we all started in Africa. Uh-huh. And this is where those brilliant, dark-skinned people moved to populate every landmass on the face of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. Every single one. Every, every single person. One. Yes. Every person on the face of the earth is a descendant of those first dark-skinned Africans. And if you trace your DNA back far enough, you'll find that a percentage of your DNA came from a country in Africa. Now, you see, none of those people were white or black. They were all shades of brown. And so are we all. In this magazine is a copy of 
these two pages, there are three pages, three or four pages, pictures of people of different color. And under each one of them, there's the word Pantone. All these colors are on the Pantone color scale, color wheel. And each of them has a number. I showed this to a group one day and the woman said, I don't want a number. And I said, wait a minute. You got a social security number when you were born. Well, that's different. No, it's not different. You're, no, you're known by a number. We all are. Look yeah. at these pictures. Find a picture that matches the, the color of the back of your hand. Look at that number and then go to the thesaurus. Look for synonyms for brown. Find a synonym for brown that you think matches the color on the back of your hand. Then go to the dictionary. Look up that color and you'll see the meaning of that word. We could stop talking about black and white because human beings do not come in black and white. We come in shades of brown. Now, if every, if every educational person were to learn that and would start teaching it, would have a Pantone color wheel on their wall, they could convince every one of their students that you're all members of the same race, that you all come in shades of brown, None of you are white and none of you are black. And some of you people who call yourselves black are very, very dark skinned. There's no doubt about it. I'm absolutely sure. But if you don't stay in the sun enough, pretty soon you aren't quite black enough. The only reason I have the color skin I have is because my ancestors came from Ireland and England, which is in the northern climes. So the people who, who moved to that, those areas from the equator had light skin because they were exposed to less sunlight. The only reason for skin color is your body's adaptation to the natural environment. It has nothing to do with being God's chosen children, yeah. period. Yeah. What uh, was the question? Uh, <laughs> it was about, <laughs> the, it's about the, the place we're in at this point in our history. Um, and where, you where do you think we have to go from here? Well, we have to leave where we are because what we are living with right now, all of us, is self-imposed ignorance. You don't have to be this ignorant if you are over the age of 15 and you know how to read or you know how to watch television and get the information from there, but you have to watch the right things. We could self-educate and we're going to have to in order to get out of this problem since the schools yeah. won't change and you know it and I know it, yeah. we're going to have to self-educate and get over this problem of self-imposed ignorance. You can learn. You could just you could learn just by reading this National Geographic magazine, or you could learn by reading this little book in which it says it's famous black quotations. Listen to just one of them. Violence is black children going to school for 12 years and receiving a year's worth of education. It happens all day, every day. And this is another one. Truth tellers are not always palatable. There is a preference for candy bars. Yeah, people don't like to hear what I say because it means you better change your behaviors and you better change your behaviors. Pale faced people, instead of being called white, should be called melanemic. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have enough iron in your blood to keep your body healthy, you're called anemic. If you don't have enough melanin in your skin to protect your cells from the dangerous rays of the sun, you must be melanemic. People who have more, more melanin in their bodies should be called melanaceous. And those who have a lot of melanin in their skin should be called melanotic. And the word melanotic is in the dictionary. Now, before I die, melanemic and melanaceous also are going to be in the dictionary. And we're going to look at the word white and black in the dictionary and realize how long they've been around and how wrong they are.
we we have to stop teaching the lie and start teaching the truth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my uh, my my partner, uh, his name is Pete. His uh, his brother has a zoo, and we're at his brother's zoo. And there's all these red foxes, and there's a a, a really dark one, uh, black haired dark fox. We said, oh well, what what kind of fox is this? I said, oh, it's a red fox. Oh, why is it dark? Oh, it has more melanin. If it works, if it works with animals, why doesn't it work with humans? Yeah. Yeah. See, it has more melanin. It has more yeah. melanin. Yeah. It has nothing to do with that fox's brain cells, with their intelligence, or with their worth as a fox. It simply is a different, their body has adapted to the natural environment in a different way. You said something just a minute ago, Jane, that I think is uh, critical. I asked you if you had been involved in changing the educational system. And, and just a minute ago, you said, we've got to take it upon ourselves to educate ourselves. And I think that's really critical to not rely on a system that has oppressed us to be the system uh, that liberates us. But you, you, can't, you can't say that we've done the job of educating if we call the people who do the educating teachers. Teachers dispense facts and figures to get kids or the red fox ready for the end of year testing. Yeah. I'm an educator. The word educator comes from the deuce, which means lead, the prefix e, which means out, the suffix ate, which means the act of, and the suffix or, which means one who does. An educator is one who is engaged in the act of leading people out of ignorance. You can't do that. By, having, by teaching students, number one, we have separation of church and state in this country, so we can't pray in the schools. But when Dwight Eisenhower was president, we took the Pledge of Allegiance and put the words under God into it, thereby making it into a little prayer. Every child in K through eight, at least, has to stand up in the morning, or most of them, and say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag with the words under God in it. That's miseducation. We should never have done that. People today should say to their students, we're going to say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag without the words under God in it. Because mm -hmm. in this school, in this school, we recognize, we realize that we are not supposed to teach religion in the classroom. Therefore, under God is coming out of the pledge. Now, we're in such a situation now where the evangelical group has become so powerful that, number one, they elected a president. Make no mistake about this. They elected Donosaurus T. Rump. You know it, and I know it, and he knows it. You have to realize that they are attempting to take over our education system. We have to put a stop to that, and we have to stop it now. If you haven't read the book C Street or the book The Family, get those two books and read them, and it will tell you about how legislators in Washington, D.C. are required, in a funny way, to take, if they, if they want to live in this, in, at C Street, in that apartment complex, then they have to agree to take classes in evangelical Christianity. Now, if you want to know about evangelical Christianity, then, now, believe me, I don't have a problem with evangelical Christianity, as it was originally practiced. Mm -hmm. But if you know who Frank Schaefer is, he's the one who brought the evangelical faith to this country. His father, Francis Schaefer, taught it to him in the UK. Frank Schaefer brought it to this country, introduced it to this country, and then he watched what happened at the hands of the evangelicals. And when you read his books, you'll find out that you need to stay away from that faith because it has been so twisted in this country. You need to take a look at it. 
And if you want to know how, what, whether or not Frank Schaefer is right, read this book, Stuff That Needs to Be Told, Said, Stuff That Needs to Be Said by John Pavlovitz. I had no idea who he was. And then I don't know, I actually heard about this book or somebody sent it to me or something. And I read it and good Lord, it is so absolutely sane that it's, it's hard for me to put it down. It is full of sane statements about what a Christian does. Christ, you know, we ran the Crusades for 300 years. We, I mean Christians, ran the Crusades for 300 years, went around killing people in the name of Christ. Now, I'll bet Jesus was just tickled to death about that. Don't you think so? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does say thou shalt not kill in the Ten Commandments, but kill people in order to bring them to Christ. Give me a break. We are proud of that. I'm not proud of that. And, and today, once again, I started again to reread some of the racial conditioning of our children by Nathan Rutstein. Oh, for the love of heaven and the love of education and the love of the human race, read this book. He, I don't have time to read to you all the wonderful things that he says, but if, if you just need to read the page to 84, 85, 86, Treatment of People of Color by European Settlers. Now, yesterday, day before yesterday, a group of an organization from a corporation called me for a pre a pre presentation meeting, and I was talking about what I would say, and a man broke in and said, "All right, now we've talked about enough about religion and and uh, politics. You're off the topic. Let's go back to racism." I said, "Wait just a minute." How do you think racism got started except through religion? And how do you think it is being perpetuated except through politics? Let me tell you. And, and I didn't get vicious. I didn't say all the words I was thinking because, you know, that's unnecessary. No, it isn't unnecessary, but sometimes I have to bite my tongue. He is wrong. Religion and politics equal racism in this country. There is no, there's, there is no industry in this country that isn't impacted by racism, particularly religion. Yeah. We, took, we took what in the Bible says was a man with feet of bronze and kinky woolly hair and turned him into a pale face with long brown hair. Now that takes a pretty good trick. That's a pretty good trick. We managed to do that in the name of God. And then we took, the, we took a verse, we, we changed lots of the verses. But the one that bothers me the most is, in the Bible, it says, and now abideth these three, faith, hope, and charity. <clears throat> but the greatest of these is charity. Charity means selfless giving. You've got to give something. You, it's going to cost you something. So we change that to faith, hope, and love. Because love's cheap. Anybody can say they love you. That's what we said to the Native Americans that we were killing by the thousands. We're doing this because we love you. Uh-huh. See, if you, could, you can change the Bible. You can change the people in the Bible. You can change the, the words in the Bible to fit your needs. And that's one of the major differences between pale faces and people who aren't pale faces. White people come into a new environment and immediately alter the environment to fit their needs. Yeah. People of color come into a new environment and immediately alter their needs to fit the environment. Yeah. Huge difference. Huge, Huge difference. Yeah. We never, we never think of it that way. It doesn't, real, it doesn't come to us that all those children at the southern border, in order to be in this country, are going to have to change their needs to fit the environment. They're going to have to give up their language. They're going to have to give up their parents. They're going to have to give up their religion. They're going to have to give up their country 
in order to get safe. Right. It should, you know, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The refuge, refuge from your main shore doesn't doesn't mention, doesn't say, but only if you're the right color, right religion, and the right what we need at the present time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, selfless giving. So I want to talk a little bit about blue eye, brown eye, and 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 kind of how that set you up for 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 so much of your life. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. That's exactly it. For fifty-three years of my life, <laughs> you know, uh, just a little side story. Uh, I, for for a number of years, I used to sing in the uh, San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, um, and it was started because there was a group of guys that were practicing a Mendelssohn song, uh, and they had been just getting together and practicing some choral music, and they had this song from Mendelssohn. Uh, and Harvey Milk got assassinated. And a number uh-huh. of people had a vigil that went down uh, Market Street to City Hall. And this group of guys sang the songs they'd been practicing. And uh, that was the beginning of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, which uh-huh. movement of gay and lesbian choruses around the world. So, you know, it's interesting how sometimes these, these single moments catalyze something for so long. So uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated uh, in 1968. I'd love for you to share a little bit about what happened when you learned and how the, what, what had you come up with doing this study back then? Oh God, see, I hate, I hate to talk about that. I turned into a soup sandwich every time I do. We were studying the Indian unit in third grade in Riceville, Iowa. Now, bear in mind that my great-great-grandfather was one of the first settlers in that area. And we had a good reputation. We, you know, my aunt had been a teacher in that area. My sister had taught for years. My other sister taught for years in that area. So here I am. <laughs> oh, Lord. And Martin Luther King Jr. had been one of our heroes of the month in February, along with, unfortunately, George Washington, who owned slaves, bought and sold people for money. Abraham Lincoln, who refused to free the slaves until he absolutely had to, and was a Melungeon, part white, part black, and part Cherokee Indian. So the person who is called, the Republican Party calls itself the Party of Lincoln. What are they going to do when they find out that he was a Melungeon? They will deny it. They will change history in order to fit their needs. I was taking the teepee home that my pre- previous year's third graders had made. We were going to put it up in the classroom the next morning, paint it with India, blah, blah, blah. So I had to wash it, dry it, and iron it. I got the kids fed. I, I, walk, I walked into my house. The telephone was ringing. I answered the telephone. It was my sister. She said, is your television on? I said, no. She said, you better turn it on. I said, why? Because they shot him. I said, who do we shoot this time? Because we were in a shooting mood. We'd already killed a lot of people. And she said, Martin Luther King Jr., And for just an instant, the world stopped turning. Mm -hmm. I swear to you, I could not, I could not relate to this country killing a man who was all about bringing hope to all of us. And for me, hope is an acronym for holding on to positive energy. And that's what he did. Mm -hmm. And so I got the kids fed. I got them to bed. I washed and dried the teepee. I spread it out on the living room floor. I was ironing the teepee and watching television. And there was Walter Cronkite 
interviewing three leaders of the black community. And he said to them, when our widow, when our leader was killed, his widow held us together. Who's going to keep your people in line? I thought, oh, my God, does he think that JFK was the leader only of white people? Right. His widow held us together. Is it because she's so strong or because the rest of us are so weak? Who's going to keep your people in line? Up until that very moment, I thought that Martin Luther King Jr. was one of my people. I thought we were all members of the same race. I was wrong. So I changed the channel and there sat Dan Rather talking to two black, so-called black men. And he said to them, don't you Negroes think you should feel sympathy for us white people because we can't feel the anger at this killing that you Negroes can. Hmm. And I thought words that you don't want on television or in your podcast. And I rolled that teepee up and I threw it into the bedroom closet and I got supper for my husband who worked nights at the Oliver Black Oliver plant in the afternoons. He worked at the Oliver plant in Charles city. And when he came in, he, he took me in his arms and he said, they killed him. Didn't they? I said, yeah. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to, we're going to learn the Sioux Indian prayer tomorrow, Daryl. And I'm going to arrange to have it answered for my kids. Said, Jane, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. I said, the Sioux Indian prayer says, Oh, great spirit. Keep me from ever judging a man until I've walked a mile in his moccasins. I'm going to allow some of my children to walk in the shoes of a black child in my classroom for a day. He said, you don't want to do that. I said, why not? He said, you lose your job. I said, if I lose my job, yeah, if I lose my job for doing something right, I don't want to teach here. He said, you won't be hired anyplace else either, Jane. These kids need that money. You know that. We need what you make teaching. Don't do this. Now, you see, he knew something I didn't know because he rode back and forth from Riceville to Charles City, which is about 25 or 30 miles every day with five men out of that community. So he knew exactly how those men talked about the killing of Martin Luther King Jr. on the way home that day. He knew exactly what the reaction was going to be. I didn't know. So I said, I'm I'm going to do it. And so I, he finished eating. We went to bed. I said, the only prayer I said at that time, Oh Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. I said it over and over like a mantra. Within 15 minutes after I started that exercise the next day, I learned something really valuable. You better be careful what you pray for. You Mm. might get it. Yeah. And you might find that out that that was exactly what you did not want. It was not my intention to spend the rest of my life being treated like the town's only N-word lover. It was not my intention to have my children, my four children who went to school in that system, beaten, spit on, their belongings destroyed, to be verbally and physically and psychologically abused by their tears, tear, by their teachers, by their peers, and by some of the parents of their peers. That was not my intention. It was yeah. not my intention for my parents to lose their business because no one would eat in the restaurant owned by the, the, the people who raised the town's only nigger and N-word lover. That wasn't my intention. It wasn't my intention to have no teacher speak to me in that system for 12 years where they could be sought, where they could be caught speaking to me because it wasn't good politics to be seen talking to the N-word lover. That wasn't my intention. But yeah. if I had known that that particular thing was going to happen, I probably would have done the exercise sooner. I would have had more freedom to teach when I was no longer involved in their classroom, in their court, in their hallway conferences, or in their ignorant, really ignorant get-togethers in which they said the most racist, ignorant things you could ever imagine in your life, which at the time I heard them didn't sound so ignorant until I realized that they were aiming them at me. Yeah. Yeah. When you're on the receiving end of that, it puts it in a whole different light for you. And so racism 
It's a totally different thing for me than it is for most melanemic people. How, how did it impact you? Being made, under- me, made me more determined. Yeah. Because if that many people are opposed to what you're doing, there, there must be some power in it if it bothers that many people and that I much. I love you saying that. Yeah. If, if, if that many people are that angry at what you're doing, there's something wrong with that many people. Because when people say ugly things about me, I have to say to myself, wait a minute, you're saying that because there's something wrong with you, not because there's something wrong with me. Yeah. And, and anyone who today can continue to believe in the rightness of whiteness has absolutely turned off their thinking machine. And they are simply reacting. They aren't thinking, they're reacting. You know, and they're reacting to what they've heard as children. Yeah, yeah. So many of the people that I work with, you know, there's, there's oftentimes a lot of fear about what's going to, if I say this thing, if I do this work in the world, what's going to happen? Yeah. And, you know, my answer is always, I I can't promise you what's happened. I don't know what's going to happen. All I know is that if you feel called to do it, that that's your path. And, you know, you saying, oh, I love the flip of the script, which is there's that many people opposed to this. There must be power in it. Absolutely. They must be scared to death. But you see, I didn't realize it at the time. But melanemic, melanemic people, pale faces are scared literally to death right now. And it's getting worse because now the demographics of this country say show without doubt within 30 years, pale faces will be a numerical minority in the United States of America. Yeah, we are scared to death. Oh, Lord, I go to to give a speech and I'm on the stage. And some melanemic 42, 45 year old woman, female, in the third or fourth row, an instructor at that college or university stands up and says, I just wonder what, when those people get power, and I think I know what people you're talking about, but I don't say, what people are you talking about? I just let her run her mouth. When they get power, are they, aren't they going to treat us the way we've treated them? And now, and I did this at the university, I think, at university, someplace in Texas, and I said to the group, your, your major fear is that those people, those people are going to want to get even with you, aren't they? Aren't you? Yes, I am. I said, well, let's find out. And this was at the University of Houston, I believe. And there are 1,500 people in the room and half of them were black. So I said to the audience, I said, well, every person in this group, in this audience, who considers himself or herself a member of the black race who wants to get even with all white folks, please stand. Three young black males stood. The rest of them just turned and looked at him like, are you nuts? And I said to her, see, they don't want to get even with all of us. Now are you more comfortable? She said, yes, I think I am. I said, good, I'm glad you're comfortable. But now let's be honest about this. Well, every person in this room who considers himself or herself a member of the black race who wants to get even with one or two white people, please stand. They all leaped to their feet, shouting and laughing and high-fiving one another and just, just cheering. Yeah. And I said, now, now, are you more comfortable now? And she said, well, no, I'm not. I said, well, here's the way to handle that. What you do in the present constructs your future. For in, so in the present, you behave in such a way that you are one of the one or two they want to get even with. Does that make sense to you? And she said, oh, I think so. And I said to the audience, does that make sense to you? And once again, they all cheered and laughed and high-fived one another. Yeah. All we have to do if we want to change our fear of those who are different from ourselves is stop treating them in abysmally ugly ways. They would have no reason for wanting to get even with us. If we would stop saying, 
we're doing this because we love you. That's the reason we're going to put your child in the non-learning group. That's the reason we're going to put your child in the special ed group because we love him and we know he can't compete. They're wrong. They're absolutely wrong. It's time for us to stop saying we love you and that's the reason we're going to abuse you. We're going to abuse you lovingly. My mother used to tattle on us kids to my dad. And then when my dad came home, she'd tell him what we'd done that was wrong and he'd have to give us a whooping. And he would, while he was whipping us, we're five, right? He'd start at the oldest and come right down to the youngest. And she'd say to us, he's doing this because he loves you. And I'd think, could you love me a little less? Well, no, he, he had to do what she wanted done. Yeah. She should have taken care of the problem during the day so that he, my father wouldn't have been the demon in the house. But mothers oftentimes do that. Wait until your dad gets home. As oh, if, I that. The, oh yeah, you've heard that. Of course you have, because mothers don't seem to think that they have the power to tra- train or educate their children to behave in a reasonable, sensible way. But fathers have the, you know, they, you know, yeah, it says in the Bible, you know, but if a child is a fool, chastise him. Well, that doesn't mean to go out to the lilac bush and get a stick about this long and come in and lace your kid's legs with it. That's not what it means. It means change his behaviors by changing his, the way he, the way he thinks, and that will change the way he behaves. And that's what education should do. It should change the way we think so that we change the way we behave. You can come out of a racist household and not be racist. I've watched it happen because I've used the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise with students at the third grade and at the junior high level enough to know that those kids go home and change what happens in their household. Because they will say to their father, uh, we don't use that word because the teacher said that's a bad word to use. And I found out how it feels to be treated that way. And I hope you don't say that anymore. And I've had mothers come to me and say, thank you for what you did for my son. What did I do for your son? He, he, well, I'll get, never forget one of them. She said, we couldn't stand to see him get off the bus. He's so mean to his little sister. I said, and she said, now when he gets off the bus, we're glad to see him get off the bus. And he's even kind to his little sister. He mm-hmm. changed totally by going through that exercise. For one day, two days, one day on the top, one day on the bottom. The day he was on the bottom, he found out how awful it feels to be there. And he refused to ever treat anybody the way he was treated the day he was on the bottom. That makes a difference. It changes your, it changes your life. It changes you for life, that exercise. If doing, however, if doing that exercise with a child can change that person into, what that, into another person, what do we do to children of color with whom we do that exercise on a daily Every basis? Day. Every day and every night, because you can't go to bed and not dream about it. And then we expect them to be good, sensible citizens, even though we have treated them as though they're less than. Mm -hmm. But we expect them to be better than. You see the conundrum that we've created? We treat you as though you're not human, and we expect you to act like superhumans. Get over it. it. Yeah. Uh, You know, it strikes me... How did you come up with this study? Like that night when you learned of Martin Luther King Jr.'s death, did it? Did you already have it in mind? Did you? I knew. That, I, knew I knew that one of the ways Hitler decided to go into the gas chamber was eye color, and so I couldn't base it on skin color because we're all the same color in Riceville, Iowa. Couldn't base it on religion. Didn't want to start a religious war. Couldn't mm-hmm. base it on age. I was the only old one in the room. Couldn't base it on height. I was the only tall one in the room. Couldn't base it on weight because they, we do that all day, every day. I didn't want to do that. Didn't want to reinforce that nonsense. So I decided I'd do what Hitler did. It worked for Hitler. Yeah. They killed hundreds of thousands of people on the basis of their eye color alone during what has come to be called the Holocaust. 
Yeah. It, it strikes me hearing you talk about it, you know, when people grow up on top, uh, a lot of folks don't ever have the experience of not being on top. Ah, but the reason for that is, if you stay in the town in which you were born, you don't have to grow up. Yep. You, just, you just grow older. That's a big difference between moving out of there and having to change and having people not recognize you and having, having to present yourself in a new way to new people and having to change as you go. But when you stay in the town in which you were born, everybody knows you. They know what you're supposed to do. They know who are, how you're supposed to worship. They know how you're supposed to sing. They know how you're supposed to. Everything is you are programmed from birth. If you stay in that same town, you cannot grow up in that situation. You can only grow older and you can grow. You can grow better at what people in that community do and what they think of you. As long as you support, as long as you don't step out of the box. As long as you stay in your place, you are accepted. The minute I stepped out of the box, I found out how it feels to be not accepted. Yeah. How did you deal with that throughout your life? <laughs> I laugh a lot. <laughs> Quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I am that important, 5'2 on a good day, and now I'm 87 years old, and people are still scared to death of me, and I laugh a lot. And what's funny about it, and it really is funny, it is, it is, a, it is a mark of the ignorance of this society that I, <laughs> I, can, I can walk through the airport and have men looking down at me glaring because they recognize me. Mm -hmm. And I had one, more than one, come up to me and say, you're the one that did that blue-eyed, brown-eyed thing, aren't you? I say, yes. I want to, I said, wait, 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 what flight are you on? And they tell me, and I say, I'm not on that flight. So I guess I don't have to worry about you, do I? And then I go quickly to the women's room. Now I know he's not going to follow me into the women's room. I know he's not going to be in there because somebody would accuse him of being a lady. And he ain't no lady, make no mistake about that. But right. I just, I have to get where I'm not going to be bothered. I've researched, I read, you know, I get death threats. I get, they took me out of Uniontown, Pennsylvania one night at midnight because uh, I had put the teachers, probably 400 teachers through the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise on the, in the morning. And then I did a speech in the afternoon. And then that night, that's a long story. But then the next day I had to, I was supposed to work with schools and the next day for two, the morning and the afternoon. And then in the evening, and then the, I was supposed to stay overnight. And then the next day go to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania to work. Three carloads of blacks picked me up at my last presentation and said, you're going now. To Harrisburg. I said, why? They said, get in the car. I got in the car. They took me out to a house they, and got me back into the car and said, go, go now. And three, three carloads of blacks, actually four, because the woman driving was head of the Pennsylvania Human Relations Society group at that time. And she raced me to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, going as fast as she could. And I said, we got the Pennsylvania Turnpike, the three carloads that were two in the, one in the front and two in the back turned and went back to Union, back to Uniontown. I said, what's going on here? She said, well, then she told me that the teachers that had put through the exercise in the morning had called the superintendent and said, if you don't get that bitch out of town, we're going to shoot her. So those black folks knew that I was going to die if yeah. I stayed in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. So they got me out. Now, the funny, the really remarkable part of that is I spoke, I did a vir virtual presentation to someplace about 
I've done them all for the last ever since may have been doing them, but I did one a couple of weeks ago. And somebody on the line said, my dad was one of the black men who took you out of Uniontown, Pennsylvania that night. I said, how do you know that? He said, my dad used to tell us about it, how he and two, two three carloads of them took you out of Uniontown, Pennsylvania to see that you didn't get killed. I said, what was his name? I, I need to talk to him. He said, he died, but he used to tell us what it was like to get you out of town. Yeah. Yeah. 53 years and about 50 years ago. Yeah. So this is this. And then to look around now and see what is happening to black males in this country on a daily basis and how we deny that it's happening until someone stands there with a video camera and takes a picture of it. So you can't deny it anymore. Yeah. And then this week, the white female cop in Minnesota thinks she's going to taser him and then says, I shot him. Oops. She couldn't. Oh, yeah. Oops. That says, that's it. That's, that's the word. Oops. That's yep. how much it meant to her until yep. she realized that there was a picture of it. Right. Oops. And, 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 and a human. But Don't it wasn't. Right. But we haven't considered them human until this last month, until, until last May, when we watched what happened to George Floyd, so we couldn't deny it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh -uh, uh -uh, uh -uh. It, it that that video. You know, I, I I think about seminal moments in our in our world, and that video, uh, watching that video, seeing people watch that video, and go that, and watching a murder, and especially for folks that aren't around it. I mean, there are plenty of people who, who know that happens in my backyard every single day. And, and but they have forgotten that somebody has said the only thing necessary for the perpetuation of evil is for good people to do nothing. If those people, those 10 or 12 people who watched that man kill that man, if they had run at them and taken them out, somebody would have gotten hurt, but that man might still be alive. Mm-hmm. But the only thing necessary for the perpetuation of evil is for good people to do nothing. And as long as we can say we didn't know about it, or several years ago, you know, somebody was getting killed on the street of New York and people just closed their, closed their drapes, stayed away from their windows and closed their drapes. And the person in the, in the store looked out the window and saw what was happening to George Floyd and closed the door. So this is, this is what we do. We are so intimidated by the police and the thought that we might get in trouble. Yeah. We're willing to let that person die because his life isn't as, as valuable as mine. Well, I'm sorry. And I had an argument with my, my granddaughter and my son-in-law this last week, two weeks ago, and said, a week ago, and I said, if I had been in that crowd, I would have charged them. And they said, you would have been killed. I said, hey, there are things worth dying for. And what in the world was George Floyd dying for? Dying for, To prove that that white cop had the right to kneel on that man's neck? What will you folks, what will you stand up for? When will you stand up and be counted? When will people in this country, when will the white eyes stand up and be counted and say, we are not going to take any more of this. We're not going to let, every person on the face of the earth is my 30th to 50th cousin because we all have the same persons persons back there we are all we all have the same ancestors yeah. 
Absolutely. So every person on the face of the earth is my 30th to 50th cousin. And when you're doing things that hurt one of my cousins, and it's perfectly obvious that what you're doing is inhumane, unfair, a fair thing's a pretty thing, and a right wrongs no man. When you're doing something that's wrong, I don't have the right to say, well, I can't do anything about it unless I'm dead. And I don't intend to be dead for a while. But I go on a college campus. And every time I go on a college campus, now there are, the, for the last four years, there have been those three little fraternity boys down there with those red caps on that say, make America hate again. They say great again, but they mean make America hate again. And I'm talking, they're doing, doing this and pointing at me like this while I'm talking. I said, all right, fellas, I know what you're thinking, talking about. You're talking, you want to see me dead. Fine, you can kill me. My son is dead. My husband is dead. I really don't care. That's not a problem for me. You want to kill me? Go ahead. But you need to know that if you kill me for doing what I'm trying to do to decrease the level of racism in this country, you might make a martyr out of me. And then you might have to spend the rest of your life celebrating Jane Elliott Day once a year. Now, do you want to do that? And then they go, no, no, no. I say, fine. Then shut up and listen while I'm talking. And then those silly boys don't realize that every black male in the room has now turned their head to look and to identify the three boys that I'm talking to. And before I finish talking, those three guys get over the back of their seat, run out of the building before I finish talking because they have now identified themselves as being the kind of people who want to perpetuate the myth of white superiority. We do not need proud boys in this country. We need wise men. Amen to that. Well, a women to that. A women to that. <laughs> yes. Uh, Shay, I'm curious, what role has faith, what do you place your faith in and what role has faith played in your journey all these years? Oh, well, I was a, I was a member of the Methodist Church Choir in Riceville from the time I was a freshman in high school till the time I finished high school. And my father, my, my mother was a casual Catholic. And my father was a believing Baptist. And when they got married, my mother had to leave the church because she married outside the church. So Catholic religion didn't have a whole lot of promise for me. But the Baptist, my father was always singing Baptist hymns just under his breath or out in the field. you know. And I believe, I, I believe in God. I believe in the hereafter. I believe that if something like this idea has been, if that's what I have to do, I think I'd better do it. Mm -hmm. And I think if I wasn't supposed to be doing it, I would have stopped a long time ago. But I see so many things happen to kids who go through that exercise and to adults who go through that exercise that for me not to do it or not to talk about it would be, as far as I'm concerned, would be to fail to believe in what I believe in, which is the power of God. I believe that there's a power in the universe and that you can tap into it. And if you tap into it and stay with it and you're doing the right thing, you'll succeed. I believe that. Yeah. Now, I don't, I don't have any idea what other people, re how they would respond to that, nor do I care. That's something that has gotten me in good steps. It helped me stay uh, partially sane 
for the last 53 years is I don't worry about what people think about me because that's their problem, not mine. Think what you want to, but it's your problem. You think about it. You're messing you up. You're not messing me up. I don't have to listen to it. Excuse me for a minute. Hello, I'm busy. Can I call? Can you call me back in an hour? I guess they didn't want to talk. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. If there's one thing you had to share with somebody, so I, I see you as somebody who has left a legacy. You are leaving a legacy. There is a legacy of your work in this world. And if you were talking to somebody else who felt compelled, felt a conviction in themselves to, to do some work in this world, and maybe they were scared of it. Maybe they were scared of what might happen to them or, or what have you. What what would you share with them from your experience? I'd say, my dad would say, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. And that's the way it is. When I talk about racism, I'm damned by people who believe in three or four different races and the superiority of pale faces. And I'm damned by the rest of the world, the same part of the world, if I don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. So there is no way I can win in this situation. I'm not in this situation to win. I'm in this situation to make a difference. And every time I have a student at the end of the, we do the exercise with the brown eyed people on one day on top and the blue eyed people on top the other day. And the third day they write essays about what they learned. And then we get in the magic circle. And I say to them every time, you blue eyed kids, you boys, I heard you talking in the girl boys room. And I heard you talking about the fact that you were going to get even with those brownies when, it, when we were done with it. And none of you got even. You were much nicer to them than they were to you. Why is that? And every time we do it, this is what I get. Because I found out how it feels to be treated that way. And I didn't want to treat anybody the way I felt when I was on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that that is what people of color know that we pale faces don't know. They know how it feels to be on the bottom and they know the mess that that makes in society when you separate people and treat some of them badly because of your ignorance about the color of their skin and treat others well because of your ignorance about the color of their skin. If we could get that message to every human being on the face of the earth, but particularly in the United States of America, look, people. What we're dealing with is people who know how ignorant we are because they know that we treat people out of ignorance, not because of skin color. This problem isn't a problem of skin color. It's a problem of ignorance about skin color, where it comes from, what it means, what it doesn't have to cause, and how valuable dark skin is going to be in the future. As the hole in the ozone layer gets bigger and bigger and more and more sunlight is allowed to enter our environment, more and more pale faces are going to have melanoma, which is a skin cancer that is a result of overexposure to the sun. We pale faces, and you are particularly pale faced, can you go out in the sun without getting a sunburn? No. Nope. No, and you, And you better stay out of the sun. As that sun, as that sunlight gets stronger and stronger, we're going to see more and more dead pale faces. More and more people are going to be saying to their pale faced children, find someone of color 
to mate with so that my grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren can stay alive. Yeah. It is going, our, our getting over the idea of several races and one being superior is going to end. And we can, as it ends, we can, we can start treating one another fairly now so that it won't be such a shock when it happens. And I'm seeing what's happening on television now. When, I, when television was first there, and I remember that too, that's how old I am. Some young people think that television has been around forever. I've got news for you, kids. It's a relatively new invention. Mm-hmm. What, what, you know, the first, I never saw a woman or a person of color reading the news. You look at them now. Most of the people who read the news are women and people of color. That is a huge step forward. Yeah. But that is very, very threatening to the members of Posse Comitatus, which is almost out of business. The Order, which has been, has been uh, sued out of business. The Proud Boys, the KKK, QAnon, the Oath Keepers, they're all sliding down, down, down in membership because people are finding out what it is they're afraid of. These guys are scared. Yeah. They're scared to death. They've got to use guns to get what they want. Well, you're going to get more respect as a dead man or in jail. Send a couple of these proud boys to a maximum security prison for a month. Watch how they respond to that treatment. Let's see how proud they really are. These guys have no idea, have no idea what it's like to live in this country as a black man. They have no idea how much intelligence it takes, they have, no, they have no idea how much courage it takes, no idea how much commitment it takes, how much determination it takes to stay alive as a black man in this country. I'll never forget the black woman who stood up, and I don't like the word black, but that's what she called herself, who stood up beside me in a, Northwestern, a, a university in the northeastern part of the United States. And when they introduced me, and it was all, all the people in the audience, all the audience members were Department heads and administrators, which is interesting in the first place. And they introduced me as the woman who is going to talk to us about differences. And this woman said, why do we have to talk about differences? Similarity. And she was, she was, you know, she was a wheel in that university. Why do we have to talk about differences? We're more similar than we are differences. Difference, differences are important than similarities. I said, I'll show you why we have to talk about differences. So I pointed to a tall, pale-faced man in the audience. I said, will you go up here? Yeah, he's 6'2 or something. He can have stand beside me doing me a big favor. And there was an even taller black, so-called black woman. I said, will you come up here? So she stood on my right. This tall man stood on my left. And I said to the audience, now, and this is a test. And I, they don't know that I'm giving them a test because they are used to culturally biased tests. So they're quite certain I can't give them a test. They can't pass. I said, now, how many of you see any differences here? They all raised their hands. I said, now, what's the first difference you notice? Now, what difference do you suppose they noticed first? Height. Hmm. That's what they said immediately. I said, that's the first difference you noticed. Yes. I said to this tall white man, is your height important to you? No. I said, did you earn it? No. Is it, a, is it an award? No. Is it a physical characteristic over which you have no control? Well, yeah. Does it give you power? Yes, it does. I've got a lot of power. And I looked up and I thought, oh, yeah, right. For this second you have, give me time. Anyway, so I turned to this black woman and I said, is, does your, is your height important to you? She said, yes, but there are some other issues to deal with. I said, we'll get to it eventually. So I said to the group, all right, his height gives him power. And she said her height gives her no power. See any other differences here? So they said age. 
So we went through that. I said, so same thing. His age isn't important to him, but it gives him power. Her age doesn't give her any power. I said, do you see any other differences? They said gender. Oh, they all said sex. I said, is sex important to you? And I turned him into a man of color. He turned red. I said, wait, let me put that another way. Is the fact that you're male important to you? Yes. Does being male give you power? Yes. So I said the same thing to that black woman. And she gave me the same answer that she had to the other three. Well, there are some other issues to deal with. I said, all right. You said height. You said age. You said, what was the other one? Anyway, gender. Mm-hmm. How do you see any other differences here? And finally, some woman in the group said color. I said, are you talking about skin color or hair color? Skin color. So I said to this tall white male, is your skin color important to you? He said, I never have to think about it. I thought, wrong answer, wrong answer. And I said, did you earn it? No. Is it give you power? Yes. Is, are you afraid of anything? No, I'm not afraid of anything. I thought, oh, you simpleton. I turned to this black woman. I said, is your color important, skin color important to you? And she said, she waited a long time. And then she said, I'm going to say something now that I've never said out loud before. I said, and that would be, she said, and now there was one tear slowly making its way down the left side of that woman's face. She said, I have two children. They're both daughters. Both times when I was pregnant, I prayed that I wouldn't have a son. I said, and that's because, because I didn't want to think about what he'd have to go through. And I didn't want to think about what I'd have to go through when I lost him. She didn't say if I lost him. She said when I lost him. You could have heard a feather fall in that room. The only sound you heard was this man going, <laughs> and I thought, cry, you SOB. How dare you never have to think about it. And I stepped to the front of the stage and I said, now, that woman just taught you more in three sentences that I could teach you in the next four hours. She has lived through something that you have been denying all your lives. She has, if a white woman has a son, she's proud of it because it's going to carry on the family name. She doesn't even have the right to do that. What are you people going to do about this? And my daughter was in the crowd and she was crying because she's gone through the abuse that happens to you as a result of having a mother who stands up and says those things. Somebody in the audience came up and handed that woman a Kleenex and she wiped her eyes and blew her nose. And then we went back to using the, doing the presentation. But I could have stopped right then because if those people were listening and they obviously were, they should have left there determined to make a difference in that university. I think if there's one thing I'm, I'm taking from this conversation, Jane, is how, how much we can do in our own backyard. And how much we don't do. You and have to remember. And you have to remember. And I know that members of the LGBTQ plus society go through a whole lot of crap. Yep. And they'll say to me, well, I've suffered that too. And I say, wait just a damn minute. You can keep people from knowing what your sexual orientation or preference is. That person right there can't keep people from knowing what her, her or his skin color is. Yeah. Now, until those of us who are discriminated against because of a different, different something over which people, well, over which you have or do not have control, until we realize what's happening with people of color in this country, we'll never solve this problem for gays and lesbians because we use as a model for how we teach, treat those who are different in any, in any, any area, 
we use as a model how we are allowed to treat people of color in this country on a daily basis. And you can see the most absolutely uncommitted, lazy person lying in the gutter. And if he's white, he'll look up and say, well, at least I'm not black. Because he knows that no matter how dissolute he becomes, as long as he isn't black, he will be at least given some consideration as a human being. Mm -hmm. no, no black person has that assurance in the United States of America. Yeah, yeah. Nat, Nat King Cole had to go in the back door of the lounges at which he performed when he was singing. He had to go in the back door because they didn't want anyone to see a black man coming into the front door of their establishment. For the love of heaven, how long will this go on? You know, Jane, I, uh, <laughs> I look at our world right now and I, I, in one way, I, I feel like we're worse off than it's ever felt in my life. But in another way, I feel hope. Uh, I look at my nieces, uh, the young kids. Yeah. Uh, and you know, my, 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 my nieces have more melanin than I do. They are not pale faced. Uh, and I look at their friends and I look at the conversations they're in and it's not the same conversations I was raised. No, no, uh -uh, no. I think, I think these young people are the hope of humankind. I really do. I, do I think that they, but I, I don't think it's because of their education. I think it's because they have been, for instance, they have been exposed to black music mm -hmm. and to black language and to black in athletics and to the, to the valuable things that they see black people doing that they can't do because they don't have the same bone structure because they aren't, they aren't as athletically inclined because they aren't as, as musical. You know, the first music didn't come out of Ireland, it came out of Africa. Art didn't come out of France. It came out of Africa. Uh, language didn't come out of China. It came out of Africa. And if everybody would read the book, Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization, and force teachers to teach from it, we would realize that in order to have Black History, if you're going to have Black History Month, you have to have eight hours a day teaching Black History because there's that much of it. But you see, that was 4,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. People in the Nile Valley, which is in Egypt, which is a country in Africa, it is in the Middle East, but we moved it into the Middle East so that we don't have to admit that all those wonderful things we got from Egyptians came from Africans. 4,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, people in Egypt were doing cataract surgery with metal instruments. Before there was such a thing ever heard of in Europe or the UK, or Asia, or the Americas. We don't include that in Black history because Black history for us started with slavery. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you see, that's, we are so narrow-minded and we are so, what's the word? We see through a funnel. Yeah. We're, we're, we're looking where our head is in the big end of the funnel and we see through the small end. We're tunnel visioned. And that's the way we teach. So the kid has to wait until he gets out of school to self-educate. But many of them now are encouraged to go on to four or six or eight more years of schooling. 
They've done studies in this country that prove that the longer you stay in school, the more bigoted you become. Hmm. Because the longer you're in school, the longer you are reinforced in what you learned grades K through eight. And what you learned in social studies, grades K through eight, was anti-social studies. Because it's all about the things that white males have done. As if those white males sprang out of the earth without any help from a female. <laughs> give, me, give me a break here. Somebody yeah. had to produce them yeah. and raise them yeah. and educate them and yeah. tolerate them. Yeah. And they did it. Yeah. But, the, but it's, it's like the only thing, if you bake a cake, the only thing that's important is a finished product. It wouldn't be a finished product if you didn't have those elements that went into it. Yeah. And it's hard to bake a cake without a pan to put it in. You know, we just ignore all those other elements and just talk about that white male. Mm -hmm. And now people are going to say, if they're still listening, and probably aren't, they turned off a long time ago, if, if they get to this point, they're going to say she doesn't like men. Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> oh, yeah. I do. Oh, mama, buy me one of those. But however, that's it. <laughs> my husband's been gone almost eight yeah. years <laughs> I enjoyed him while I was here yeah good but I didn't, but I didn't enjoy him enough yeah and yeah. if anybody you know if I could take one if somebody could take one thing away from this here's what it is appreciate those you have while you have them because all of a sudden they're gone yeah and Thank you don't Anyway, go on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think we can wrap it up there. This is, um, it's uh, talking to somebody who's been doing their work for the amount of time you've been doing your work, who's been on the front lines. Uh, you're such a model of courage. No, 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 no. Black women are models of courage. Make no mistake about this. And the most, the most courageous woman I know is a black lesbian. Yeah. Make no mistake about this. Because if I had been black the day I did that blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise in my classroom, I'd have lost my job and I might have lost my life. Yeah. What I do doesn't take courage. It takes, it takes a bit of anger and a bit of determination to change this situation. There's one more other thing, if you don't know this. Oh, I know you know a lot of other things, but you have to know this. This is one of the ways we have to change education. You see this? This yeah. is the map that's used throughout the schools in the United States of America, except the Boston public schools are no longer using this map because they realize that Greenland isn't this big and the equator isn't two thirds of the way down the map. This is the Mercator projection map. It is used throughout the United States and the world to teach about the size, the shape, and the location of land masses on the earth. It's a map that should not be in the schools or anyplace else. There's a, there's a better way if you aren't familiar with, there are lots of better ways, but this is a really good one. This is the Peters projection map. See the size of Greenland up here? Mm -hmm. See the size of South America? See the size of Africa? And on this map, the equator is halfway between the North Pole and the South Pole. Everybody should have a copy of this map 
in their office, in their living room, in their brain, in their pocket, because we need to see the world in a different way. This, this map is racist teaching, make no mistake about it. We need to stop using it and we need to start using this map. This is the Peter's projection map, Google, Peter's projection map, or just go to capital O, capital D, capital T, maps.com, and you can get a copy of this map. It will be, if we could have one in every classroom in the United States, that would be the beginning of education about racism. Because why? Because it would tell the truth. On, on the bottom of the, of the Mercator map, on the last line, just a minute, I've got, I've got a copy of the Rand McNally, the last line. On the legend at the bottom of the map, I, I cut this out and put it in this thing because this is um, my, anyway, it doesn't matter. On the last line here, it says South America is actually nine times larger than Greenland. But it looks like this. The very map on which it says South America is actually nine times larger than Greenland. This is the visual image you get. And if the teacher pays attention, this is where the truth is. Mm -hmm. We need to start telling the truth throughout the map instead of just the last line of the legend. People have to realize that. Teachers have to point that out to their students. Teachers have to point out to the students that we all make mistakes, boys and girls. And the Pope made a mistake when he commissioned Mercator to make a map of the world that showed the spread of Christianity. That's the reason this map is built is, is the way it is, because Mercator was showing the spread of Christianity. So the countries with the people of the pale faces are larger than the countries in which there are people of color. Uh -huh. That's uh -huh. called blatant racism. Yeah, as, got it. As a, as a result of self-imposed ignorance. Got it. Yep. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes yeah. sense to you. So good. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for your okay. heart. Thank you for your well, commitment. <laughs> okay, I should be. People say I should be committed. I get that regularly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Jane Elliott, all my love. Thank you. Well, that good. I'd like to have a man in love with me now. <laughs> I'll see what I can do about that. sending some to uh, Sun Valley. <laughs> no, don't send it to Sun Valley. I live in Sun City. Sun City, that's right. It, it's City. too cold in Sun Valley. Don't send it to Sun Valley. <laughs> anyway, anytime, anytime you can find a man my age who can still walk and talk and chew gum at the same time. All right. I'll keep my eyes out. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. Hey there, thanks so much for listening in. If this conversation was powerful, if it stirred your soul or inspired your journey, then be sure to share it with a friend. Just copy and paste the link wherever you're listening to this podcast and text that link right now to a friend that you think would be inspired by this episode. And if this is your first time here, be sure to click that subscribe button over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a rating and review so I can get to know you and your thoughts better. To learn more about the work I do with emerging and established paradigm changers, go to thecourageousmessenger.com. That's all for today. Thanks so much for being here, and I hope to see you in the next episode.